U.S. debt ceiling is a legal limit on how much already accrued debt the U.S. government is allowed to pay off by accruing more debt. If we think of the total U.S. debt, which is something like $31.5 trillion as of the day I'm recording this, as a credit card bill, the debt ceiling says, in essence, no matter how much of that debt you need to pay off on a recurring basis to not default on all that spending, no matter how big the payments you have to make, there is only so much you are allowed to pay back using other sorts of debt, metaphorically paying using other credit cards. This metaphor falls apart, though, when we consider that the U.S. government and many other governments often pay their debts with other sorts of debt. It doesn't work the same way for a government as it does for an individual or household, because governments often sell bonds and treasury bills to raise money for necessary expenditures. Paying the military, paying Medicare beneficiaries, paying for all sorts of safety net-related welfare programs, things like that. It's possible that the U.S. could someday pay down all its debt and revert to a model in which it doesn't need to raise money to pay its bills. But it's been a while since that's been the case, and some economists have argued it's actually not so great to operate in that one-for-one, dollar-in, dollar-out fashion if you're hoping to grow the economy. There are a lot of opinions on this, and some contend that we should just go debt-free as soon as possible. But it's not clear that doing so would be ideal, except in the theoretical sense of not being in debt seeming like a generally good thing. But in any case, it would be a while before that would even be an option, so it's not something that's under discussion in the near term. That means we are in a situation in which there's a lot of debt to pay off, things we have already accrued debt on, not stuff that we are thinking about spending more money on in the future. And that means we are on the hook for those payments. And under the current paradigm, at least, that means issuing more bonds and treasuries, and in some cases other financial instruments, in order to raise the appropriate money to pay those bills. The debt ceiling limits how much money we can spend on these bills, though, and that means if we hit the ceiling, as we've repeatedly done for decades over and over again, we then have to legislatively raise the ceiling to allow the government to pay for the expenditures it has already made, the debt it has already accrued. If the government fails to do so, it is not legally allowed to pay its bills. And just like someone who does not pay their credit card bill, that would mean a lot of negative outcomes, including a diminishment of the delinquent party's credit rating. And countries have credit ratings just like people. And just as for people, they tell would-be lenders how much of a risk that borrower is, which in turn determines how much interest those doing the loaning charge on the money borrowed. The U.S. is considered to be a very good bet, which is part of why it's so relatively easy for the U.S. government to borrow money and take on new debt. It doesn't have to pay much interest on that borrowed money because it is considered to be as close to a sure thing as you can get when it comes to interest accruing debt. So this debt is very cheap. The government doesn't need to pay much interest on the money borrowed to attract borrowers because that safety and reliability is worth something unto itself. If the U.S. were to not pay its bills on time, though, that would raise all sorts of questions and could lead to a diminishment of that credit rating. And one credit rating firm has already dropped the U.S.'s rating from the first to the second highest rating, though all the others have kept it at AAA, the highest rating available for governments, for the time being. 
If you are thinking this debt ceiling business seems unnecessary and risky, why limit this end of the spending funnel rather than just limiting spending before debt is accrued if that's what you're aiming to do? If you are thinking that, you are not alone. And as of 2023, only the United States and Denmark still have debt ceilings that set an absolute concrete figure as to the limit rather than a percentage of total GDP, though most countries don't have debt ceilings at all. And part of why this isn't a popular approach to limiting spending is that it's often just a bureaucratic hoop to jump through on a semi-regular basis, especially for countries that are good for the money that they are borrowing with little chance of delinquency under normal circumstances. The debt ceiling mostly just raises the possibility of delinquency because the government artificially ties its own hands. It can easily get the money it needs to pay the debt, and that debt is cheap, but it does not allow itself to do so. And again, this limit applies after the spending has already occurred, which means it is not limiting spending. It's just making it more difficult to pay for what's already been spent. So it's a bit of a pointless exercise from most modern perspectives. And yet here we are. What I'd like to talk about today is the most recent round of political posturing that has been sparked by the debt ceiling in the United States. What is in the debt ceiling deal that was struck between Republican and Democratic leaders, and why so many people are unhappy about that deal, despite most of them having voted for it. This is episode 366 of Let's Know Things. That means if you wanted to, you could go back and listen to a full free episode of Let's Know Things every single day for a year. I don't know why you'd want to do that. Please don't do that. That sounds crazy, but you could do that if you wanted to. I've been doing this podcast for about seven years now. There are another almost 50 bonus episodes available to people who are paid supporters of this show. And if you're finding any value in what I'm doing here on Let's Know Things, please consider becoming one of those supporters. The simplest way to do that is to become a patron at patreon.com slash let's know things, or you can become a member at understandery.com to support this and all of my projects. A huge thanks to everyone who's already helping to support this show. Your support means the world to me, and it is the reason I'm able to produce this show each week, and the reason I'm able to make those bonus episodes each month. I still love making this podcast after all these years, and it is thrilling to know that there are people on the other side of this microphone who are finding value in it as well. Thank you for sticking around, and here's to the next seven years. All right, let's get back to the show. Last Saturday, June 3rd, U.S. President Biden signed the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023, which, among other things, ended a months-long standoff between the Republican Party through its avatar House Speaker McCarthy, who manages his party's majority in that half of Congress, and the president himself over the nation's debt ceiling. More specifically, this act settles the issue of whether the debt ceiling should be raised to account for spending that has once again surpassed the current limit, which means new borrowing is required if the government wants to be allowed to pay the nation's already accumulated bills. 
Biden and McCarthy both said throughout this process that there was no chance of the country actually defaulting on this debt. To do so could be incredibly damaging to the long-term economic well-being of the United States and could go on to cause an international economic catastrophe. Reliant as so many nations are on the U.S.'s fiscal reputation and the reliable value store the U.S. dollar has represented since the mid-20th century. Despite those theoretical reassurances, though, some experts were watching this standoff with sweat on their brows, as it seemed like a game of chicken, that both sides had reason to play all the way to the end, come what may. The president, for his part, was incentivized to not present the debt limit as something that was up for negotiation. The Republicans had previously attempted to, in the words of many analysts, hold the economy hostage to get what they want from a Democratic president, threatening to tank the economy if they are not given something in exchange for their debt limit-raising votes. And when they seemed primed to try the same thing again, Biden said basically, no deal, I'm not even going to have that conversation, because to do so would be like negotiating with terrorists who are threatening to seriously hurt the country for their own gain. It would also likely incentivize Republicans to do the same in the future, anytime they find themselves with a Democratic president, because they never try the same thing when a Republican president is in office. They just vote it right through. McCarthy, on the other hand, kept hinting that something bad could happen, while also hinting that he would never let things go too far, though all that hinting seemed ominous in the context of the larger political state of play, because a significant portion of his own party seemed downright thrilled to have the opportunity to trigger an economic crisis, and even started talking to the press about how many problems it would solve, without evidence or credibility, but the fact that there seemed to be that many Republicans keen to tell the U.S. economy, and consequently, the global economy, in order to create chaos that they might be able to profit from, was worrying, as it meant they might be able to take advantage of any slip-ups or time constraints to make that happen. And if any of the adults in the room stumbled or failed to take some small element of the negotiations and process into consideration, that might represent an opportunity for that segment of the party. McCarthy was also incentivized to push for more till the very end by those same members of his party, the so-called MAGA wing, which is loyal to former President Trump, or in some cases wants to go even further than Trump ever tried to go with some of his more extreme far-right policies. In taking the speakership, McCarthy had to give up some power to this wing of the party, including the introduction of a new rule that would allow any representative to call for a vote for his removal at any time and that call would then have to be honored. There's a sort of sword of Damocles hanging over McCarthy then, and pushing these negotiations harder than might have made sense under other circumstances, thus kind of made sense from the perspective of trying to protect his position within party leadership. Had he not pushed hard till the very end, there was a very good chance one of these MAGA Republicans would have used it as a justification to call for his ouster as House Speaker. The practical outcome of this unstoppable force coming up against this unmovable object was that negotiations were sluggish and intentionally drawn out, neither side giving much ground, and the whole conversation periodically ceasing entirely for days or weeks at a time. The country sleepwalked toward a cliff then, and that cliff was moved back a few times by Treasury Secretary Yellen, who was able to shuffle money around and trim spending, not without consequence, in order to keep the lights on. But she made clear over and over that this was not a sustainable level of spending to keep things going. 
It was starvation rations. And eventually, she said that June 5th was the hard deadline for when the government would slam into that ceiling, no longer legally allowed to borrow the money it needs to pay its bills, casting the country and the world into unfamiliar and somewhat terrifying territory. Biden has now signed an act that suspends the debt ceiling rather than raising it until January of 2025, giving the involved sides some breathing room to hopefully hammer out something more long-term on this issue, lest it become a political cudgel to hammer each other with every time the country is on the brink of hitting it. And that 2025 date is important, as it means this will no longer be as pressing an issue during the upcoming 2024 presidential election. This act also includes an array of new rules and changes to old ones, capping some spending and putting some limits on a few of Biden's plans, though it doesn't outright kill any of his most prominent efforts. And because it's not brutal enough on those Biden-implemented and supported programs, this act is not beloved by many Republicans. But because it does truncate some things Democrats like, it's not beloved by many of them either. The majority of both parties do not like this act, but both mustered enough votes to pass it because they'd come too far. They'd pushed things all the way to the brink, and if they did not pass something, immediately the country would have gone into default. The politically expedient way of looking at this act is that it wasn't really meant to give either party a major whammy on the other. It was meant to give both parties something they could take home to their constituents that would allow them to claim some kind of victory, making the whole horrible process seem like less of a waste of time than it probably actually was. The Republicans are now able to say, look at what we got from the Democrats, basically for free. We just had to threaten them a little, and they gave in. And the Democrats can say, look at how little we gave them. It's not that bad compared to what could have happened. And to some degree, both parties can also trumpet their success in working together to pass a piece of bipartisan legislation very rapidly, even though most members of both parties did not like what they were passing. They did it to keep the economy from going into a tailspin. And even though one of the involved parties was responsible for that threat of a tailspin, that threat would not have existed had they not held the process hostage. Ending that threat, whatever its source, is still something like a victory for democracy if you squint your eyes and don't ask too many questions. Thus, Biden is being celebrated as a hero. McCarthy is being celebrated as a hero. More extreme members of both parties, those to the far left and far right of the center of their parties, are being lambasted as irresponsible hooligans for pushing the envelope, wanting to fight for more of a payout on the Republican side, and no payout at all on the Democratic side. And Joe Manchin, a Democrat who often acts like a Republican, seems to have walked away with more than anyone else, getting approval for a gas project in his state, the Mountain Valley Pipeline that's been held up for ages, and for which he has been lobbying just as long. That gift for Manchin arrived alongside a few other gestures at changing permitting reform for future energy projects, something both parties want to some degree, and a potential next target for actual bipartisan activity. But it's mostly just a gimme for Manchin at this point, and seemed to be a means of appeasing him and a few other ostensibly centrist politicians during a process that required all hands on deck and all votes that could be mustered. 
Beyond that pipeline approval and the suspension of the debt ceiling till 2025, the act also caps discretionary spending till then, requires the return of unused COVID-19 funds from various entities, rescinds some additional funding, about $20 billion worth from the IRS, which will reduce its ability to go after wealthier tax dodgers, which was something the Republicans didn't want to see happen, and it requires the use of what's called a PAYGO system, which basically means executive regulations that don't pay for themselves require money be pulled from other federal programs in the unpaid amount to keep the books more fiscally balanced. It also demands that an earlier moratorium on student loans ends for good on September 1st of 2023, and that work requirements for SNAP beneficiaries are broadened to include folks up to age 50 in 2023 and up to age 55 by 2025 to 2030. Many of these new provisions either come with a lot of caveats or use language that make them relatively easy to bypass or end in the future, though. And veterans and people experiencing homelessness are exempt from that new SNAP work requirement, while the provisions attached to that pipeline are being seen as a step forward. Some Democrats are calling it a down payment on future energy-related provisioning, especially for renewable energy projects. It could be a foot in the door for next step renewable energy development then, even if today it's mostly just helping Manchin get his gas pipeline built. So this act does have some real practical implications, but many of them are relatively moderate. Most are not what anyone actually wanted or feared, depending on which side they're on. And the main thing all this back and forth accomplished was keeping things stable in regards to the country's credit rating and economic trustworthiness. But that stability may still be under threat after all this hullabaloo, as credit rating agency Fitch has announced that it's keeping the U.S. on watch for a downgrade because of how close things got to disaster. While some international economic entities, from banks to investors, have said on the record that they are reassessing using the U.S. as a safe haven for money and other assets. Even if they didn't believe a real deal default was likely, the fact that it was possible makes the U.S. a far riskier bet. In Fitch's announcement, the agency said there had been a, quote, steady deterioration in governance over the last 15 years, end quote, in the United States, attributing that deterioration to polarization and partisanship within the government that, among other things, led to an assault on the U.S. Capitol building after the 2020 election, and which has made some components of the government essentially ungovernable, both sides beginning to see things in zero-sum terms, aiming to win rather than focusing on governing. Fitch says it will resolve its watch in the third quarter of 2023, but the variables it is working into that math, especially those related to the lack of governance due to heightened polarization, will almost certainly remain basically the same for a long while, debt ceiling victory or not, until something more fundamental changes in the way these entities and the officials of which they consist behave and operate. book I'd like to recommend today is called We Are Legion, We Are Bob by Dennis E. Taylor. This is the first book in a series called The Bobaverse, and it is a very tongue-in-cheek, humorous sort of science fiction series predicated on the concept of von Neumann probes, a von Neumann probe being a 
spacecraft that is self-replicating so it can make more of itself in addition to being able to make anything else it can build manufacturing facilities that can produce just about anything including more of itself so then over time theoretically you could send this type of spacecraft into any part of the universe and using what raw materials are on hand it can mine and refine and utilize those raw materials to make more of itself, creating kind of a swarm of probes if it wants to, and then that allows it to amplify its efforts and to create more stuff, and then conceivably slowly take over the galaxy or the universe on behalf of whatever species built this probe. In this case, the probe in question is being manned by a human being who died and whose intelligence was used to create an artificial intelligence. His brain mapped and uses the base for creating this AI. And so he becomes the intelligence controlling the probe, and that leads to a galaxy-spanning narrative, a whole lot of interesting adventures, a whole lot of speculation about what it would be to have these types of intelligences, what it would look like, what it would enable, what it would disable, and it's all through the lens of a main character, a protagonist who becomes a collection of protagonists, who have a fairly unique view, and often quite dad humor style, comedic view, on everything that's happening. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of We Are Legion, We Are Bob by Dennis E. Taylor. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods or at onesentencenews.com. I've got another podcast, Brain Lenses, you can also search for or find at brainlenses.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube, and Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.